Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And today, Ken had a chance to speak with Matthew Heineman about his film, The First Wave. The First Wave is a cinema verite documentary that goes inside one of New York's hardest hit hospitals during the terrifying first four months of the COVID pandemic. Obviously, this is a very difficult subject for all of us. How did that manifest in the film? Yeah, the film, it's a real roller coaster of emotions, and much of it is dark, but some of it is triumphant and even light in tone. In the interview with Matthew, I did use the word dark at one point to describe my experience with the film, and he had a little bit of a bone to pick with that because I think for him, there's a lot to be inspired from and by in the film, and I do agree with him, but as an audience member, somebody watching the film, it is very hard to take at points, but it also is joyful and it is inspirational. It is a true roller coaster of emotions that you go through. Matthew Heineman is a New York City-based filmmaker. The first wave had its world premiere at the Hamptons International Film Festival earlier this year. It was named as a Critics' Choice Documentary Award nominee for best editing. It is listed by Cinema Eye Honors Awards for Outstanding Achievement in Production. And it was honored with the International Documentary Association's Distinguished Documentary Achievement Award for 2021. Matthew's most recent film is The Boy from Medellin for Amazon, which is an intimate portrait of one of the biggest international music superstars of our time. Additionally, earlier in 2021, Matthew co-directed with Matthew Hamachek the two-part documentary Tiger, which is about Tiger Woods, which was on HBO. In 2019, Matthew received a nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement of a First-Time Feature Film Director from the Directors Guild of America for his narrative debut, A Private War. Matthew also directed and executive produced The Trade, a Showtime docu-series that chronicles a different topic each season from the opioid crisis to human trafficking and received the award for best episodic series from the International Documentary Association. His film City of Ghosts premiered at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival and Matthew won his second Outstanding Directorial Achievement and Documentary Award from the Directors Guild of America for the film, and it won the Courage Under Fire Award from the IDA. His big breakthrough film is Cartel Land, which explores vigilantes taking on the Mexican drug cartels. The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. It premiered at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival, where Matthew won the Best Director Award and Special Jury Prize for Cinematography. Matthew has also made another film set in the healthcare system. He co-directed and produced the feature-length Emmy-nominated documentary, Escape Fire, The Fight to Rescue American Healthcare. We've got a lot more of these conversations coming up, and you won't want to miss any of them, so please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up is Ken's conversation with Matthew Heineman about his film, The First Wave.
Hi, everyone. I'm Ken Jacobson. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm very pleased to be here today with filmmaker Matthew Heineman. Matthew, hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. Why do you make documentary films? Because I got rejected from Teacher America is the actual answer. But I think that's not why you're, how I got into it. It's such a privilege to tell stories, such a privilege to be able to explore the world through a camera and to every couple of years dive into a new subject and explore it and try to make sense of it. And I think that what I've tried to do in my career and in the films that I've made is take issues that are large and amorphous and hard to understand and plastered across headlines and filled with stats and try to put a human face to it. That's certainly what I tried to do with the first wave in pretty much all the films that I made. Can you take us back to the very early days of COVID and what made you think you wanted to shoot a Verite style film in the midst of this historic and extremely frightening pandemic? I felt this enormous responsibility to make this film. In March, as we started to contemplate the film, as the first cases of COVID started to hit the U.S., we were inundated with stats, misinformation. But we as an American public, we didn't see what was happening inside those four walls. And I think that's one of the greatest tragedies of COVID, frankly, is that, and that's what allowed it to become so politicized, is that we didn't see really what was happening, how people were fighting, how people were living, or dying, you know, so often referred to as a sort of war, doctors on the front lines, nurses on the front lines. But if you look back in, in journalism and you look back on wars throughout history, there's a reason why journalists go to places and tell stories and show images from them because it informs public discourse. With COVID, especially in those early months, early weeks, we didn't have those images. I think that's one of the greatest tragedies of COVID. And I think that's part of what drove us to make this film is that we felt this duty, this obligation to, to document this moment in history. And that's why Northwell Health and, and Long Island Jewish Medical Center, which is one of their hospitals where we filmed, I think that's why they allowed us in, is they felt the historical import of documenting this sort of once in a lifetime pandemic. Obviously there's no film without getting access to a hospital. How did you get access to Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens? We reached out to hospitals all across the country and got rejected from hospitals all across the country. And I, I finally sort of in, in a desperate act reached out to a former participant in a film I made called Escape Fire, Dr. Don Berwick, the former head of Medicare and Medicaid under President Obama. He similarly felt that this is a very important thing to document. He introduced me to the head of Northwell Health, the largest healthcare system in New York, and said that I was a you know decent human being and they should at least entertain the thought of me coming in to film this. It was really that introduction and that advocation for me that at least started the conversation. And then the leadership there, again, felt this historical import to document this. And it's through several days of conversations and explaining to them that I didn't want to just talk to doctors or nurses after the long day on Zoom, but I actually wanted to film a character-driven verite film inside the hospital, on the ground, and why it was important to do so. They understood it, and I owe the entire film to them, obviously, for letting me in. Obviously, safety was foremost, I'm sure, but at this time, there were no protocols for shooting films during COVID. How did you figure out how you were going to be safe? and keep everybody as safe as possible in shooting the film. Yeah, there were no protocols. The science was virtually non-existent. Looking back on how many times we washed our hands and wiped down our groceries, which 
is not how COVID is really transmitted. We knew so little about the disease. And, and so we did the best we could with the limited amount of information we had. Obviously, PPE was extremely scarce at the time. We were given one N95 mask for two weeks that we had to continue to reuse. We basically mimicked what doctors and nurses were doing. We wore scrubs, had the N95, put a surgical mask over that, and did the best we could and adapted it as we continued to learn more. But it was, you know, it's terrifying. Every single aspect of making a film was a potential weapon for this disease. Putting a mic on somebody, putting the camera down on the counter, taking a card out and handing it to an assistant editor. Every single aspect of the sort of machinations of making a documentary had its own set of challenges, especially when you're filming in an ICU slash ER for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. We developed our, our own set of safety protocols and did the best we could. And I'm, I'm really proud to say that on our team got ever got COVID while we were making this. Obviously, another concern was to spread it amongst the participants that we filmed and we didn't spread it to them either. How did you work with the hospital to figure out what access was going to be? Because as you've mentioned, you shoot uh, verite style, you do get up close and personal. You're going into these hospital rooms. How did you figure that out with the hospital team? It, it was an evolving process. You know, trust is not given, trust is earned. And I believe that in relationships, I believe that in filmmaking, while we were given access and the door was open to us, you know, we're constantly sort of had to earn and gain and keep that trust. Obviously, if you're given trust, access to the top, that doesn't mean that when you walk into a hospital, everyone on that floor welcomes you. And so we had to, on a micro level, constantly communicate why we were there, what the purpose was to the doctors and nurses that we were interfacing with, that we were filming with, especially in those early weeks. By the end of filming, after four months of being at hospital, I think we probably filmed on every you know floor of that place almost every room and we, we were all over that hospital. And I think hopefully after a couple of weeks, we, we started to become a part of the fabric of the daily life of that organism of the hospital. Let's get to the film. I, I wanna start by going through the first five minutes of the film or the first scene once we enter the ward. And I, I do wanna give a spoiler alert here. If you haven't yet seen the film, I'd recommend you skip over this question because it's an extremely powerful five minutes, and I don't want to spoil it for you. Right away in these first five minutes, we go straight into a patient's room. There's lots of nurses and doctors around. There's machines beeping, and there's a patient being asked if he wants to go on a respirator. He yells, put me on now. And from there, it's just a life and death drama every minute. Can you take us through that scene and tell us why you wanted to begin the film this way? I think with every film I make, and with this film especially, I want the audience to feel what it felt like to be in, in that place, whatever the story is. And obviously in this case, in ICU and in, in, in the epicenter of, of COVID in the US in a hospital in Queens, I wanted to drop people in to the chaos that it felt. I wanted to mimic that experience of what it felt like in March. March was filled with unknowns, filled with misinformation, filled with death in that hospital. We felt it was very important to just drop people right in the middle of it as we all were dropped into it, as the doctors and nurses were dropped into it with such limited information. The sad and scary part about it, especially at that time, is that people who were trained their entire life to understand the human body, how the human body works, how to fix the human body, everything that they learned and were trained for was thrown out the window. At one minute, somebody could be alive. The next minute, they could be dead. A person that you think would survive would die. A person that you think would die would survive. It was the wild west of healthcare. And, and so that's why we wanted to drop you in there 
and experience it really viscerally what it felt like to go through that roller coaster in that razor thin line between life and death that they were walking along at every step of every day. It's truly harrowing and it's also gripping. After that scene, either you're going to be willing to take this ride or you're not as an audience member. And certainly I felt like I had no choice, but I wanted to, to, to watch the rest of this film. It's an amazing opening and I just want to commend you on it. It's not a decision we took lightly. It's not something that we just dropped into the front and like, oh, this is a great scene. We debated and thought about and contemplated that for weeks. Every single frame of this movie, every single second in this movie, every single pixel of this movie, every single sound in this movie was deeply debated about and, and thought about and contemplated. And with that opening scene as well, we spent a fair amount of time with his wife to make sure that she was okay with that inclusion of the scene in the beginning of the film. And she similarly to the hospital, to us, felt that it was really important for the world to understand what was happening. And, and she felt it was important to include the scene. I did wonder how much conversation must have taken place off camera with the families of people who were sick and who died on camera. And that explains how it was a process. It's not just a matter of going in and shooting it and putting it in the film. Speaking of things that may have been discussed or debated in the edit room, just speculating here, but the next voice we hear in the film is a kind of voice of God, which is Governor Cuomo giving a press conference saying we're battling a deadly virus. This is going to be a long day. This is a character test for us individually as a society. Obviously, how now former Governor Cuomo is perceived has, has changed from what it was back in March 2020. Why did you want his voice to be a thread that you kept coming back to? So there's no Tony Fauci in the film. There's no Trump in the film. I really did not want to make this film, quote unquote, political. It's not a examination of how we got here, what went wrong or who's at fault. It's an experiential film covering these four months. The reason that Andrew Cohen was in the film is whether we like it or not, he provided sort of metronome of information at that time for New Yorkers, for Americans, for people across the world. And so his inclusion in the film is a way to mimic that experience of taking you back to that time and those daily briefings that he did to help contextualize what was happening. It by no means is, is a sort of analysis of, of his performance, either as a governor or as a human being, which obviously has all changed since the film was completed. Did it ever come up that this might distract the audience in a way or take them out of the events that were so intimately inside of? There were previous iterations of the film that included more of, of Governor Cuomo, and we trimmed it down to what you in the final version of the film in an effort to address exactly what you're saying. We did not want him to be a distraction. We wanted the focus of the film to be about the amazing doctors and nurses and patients that we were following. And I think the reaction thus far is, is I think, people understanding why we included it, that he provided that perspective for us at the time, and, and that's why he's in the film. As you alluded to, there are some amazing doctors and nurses in the film. The heroine of the film, the protagonist, Dr. Natalie Duget, who's an internist at the hospital. She's an incredible woman. How did you meet Dr. Duget and how did you know she's the one I want to be at the center of this film? If you've seen the film, then you probably understand why. She just had this amazing spirit, this amazing ability to communicate information, this amazing ability to communicate emotion. And... People don't like to talk about it as much as a narrative film. You're casting in a documentary. The people that you choose to focus on, those are choices. When I first met Holly 
in the hallway in one of our first days in the hospital, she just had this energy about her that was electric. And she seemed very open to being filmed. I had no idea where this story was going to go, where the arc of her character was going to go. But I knew that this was somebody who was incredibly empathetic on camera and with her patients. I owe everything to her for opening her life to us at such an incredibly difficult time. What was her response initially when you started to discuss the possibility that you were going to be spending a good deal of, of time with her? She jokes that I don't think she totally knew what she was buying into in terms of the amount of time that we'd end up spending together. But I think all of us had no idea. I think we naively thought that this thing would last for one or two weeks and that we'd be done. And that's why we were filming so intensely for the first couple of weeks, 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. Obviously, we ended up filming for several months and we're still living with it today. In the first extended scene we, we see with Dr. Duget, she says, we are taught pattern recognition in medicine and that as of now, there is no clear pattern. For me, that was just a chilling moment, realizing that the doctor's training essentially doesn't apply here in large part. They're flying blind. As a patient, that's basically the last thing you ever want to hear your doctor say. How did the doctors cope with this feeling of not knowing and a feeling of helplessness? That was the hardest thing to witness. There's many hard things to witness, but that, that was one of the hardest things to witness is that these people who are trained their whole life to understand the human body in a certain way, to have all that thrown out the window by this unknown pandemic, it was traumatizing. They were basically powerless and they did the best they could with an incredible amount of love and empathy and care to keep people alive. But there's really no rhyme or reason at that point in terms of who is living, who is dying. When that's on your conscience, when you're signing that death certificate or on the other side of things, discharging that patient, and you accumulate that over you know, dozens of patients, dozens of deaths, dozens of days, dozens of weeks, like that has an effect. And I think right now, a year and a half later, we're starting to really see the mental health effects, the trauma, the PTSD that healthcare workers are, are dealing with. And we're gonna lose a whole generation likely of, of healthcare workers as a result of that. And that's really sad. Ironically in healthcare, there's still a stigma around seeking help. There's still a stigma around mental health, and that needs to change. Early on, Dr. Duget says she, she has to separate herself from the emotions of what's going on with her patients in order to get through her day. But we do see over time that Dr. Duget and the other healthcare professionals don't always manage to do that. Was that another thing that was kind of unique to COVID? Did it strip away doctors and nurses' ability to maintain this separation? It depended on who you were, but I, I think in some ways, yes. In some ways, it, it further separated emotions because it's one thing to convey information to a family member who's holding the hand of a loved one in person, but one of the most insidious aspects of COVID was the fact that, that these life or death decisions were being made through iPhones or iPads what a difficult thing to have these discussions about life or death virtually. And then to have people dying alone without their family members. That was difficult for everyone. That was difficult for the families. That was difficult for the doctors and the nurses who had to make these calls and have these conversations. This is a very dark film. There are some lighter moments and we'll get to those. One of the 
darkest, I think, does involve Dr. Duget. It's a little past the midpoint of the film. The daily death tolls are at their highest. The doctor has a very rough day. She loses a patient who seemed like he was doing okay, as you described. Sometimes that happens, a lot of times. She turns to the camera and says, you have no reassurance for the families. You feel so hopeless. And she really gets worked up. And in fact, she gets worked up to the point where a colleague gently comes up from behind her and escorts her away from the camera and out of the room. And your camera kind of lingers on the empty room for a moment. It's just a, it's a hard moment, Matthew. Can you talk a bit about filming that? I don't know if you were in the room at the time. What was going through your mind and your crew's mind while you were shooting that or back in the edit room while you, when you were watching that footage? I was there, of course, and I, yeah, it was incredibly emotional. The way she conveyed it and, and emoted and the depths of her sorrow made it sort of impossible for us to cut away. I should probably clock it, but it's well over a minute. I think it might even be over two minute monologue in which we're just there with her. We don't really use interviews in my films and it's it sort of breaks the style of the film for a moment, but it's so, she just literally summarizes every aspect of what it feels like to be a doctor at that time. And, and it's such an incredibly emotional way that we had to stay on her. And then when it turns out, which we didn't know at the time, that there was this other doctor standing behind us as we were filming, who at the crescendo of her emotion sweeps her away and walks her down the hallway. We had to stay on her. I, I will challenge you. I mean, I, you obviously can believe whatever you want to believe. I, I don't believe that the film is a very dark film. I think it is a difficult film, but, and I can only speak from my perspective, obviously. It was the hardest film I've ever made. It was the scariest film I've ever made. There was really, tremendously sad moments every single day, undeniably, including that one. But I think the feeling that we had, and this is not some like marketing ploy or like, you know, revisionist history. This is generally what drove us every single day to make this film is I think we are deeply, 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 deeply inspired by the fortitude, by the courage, by the love, by the empathy, by the power of human connection that we witnessed every single day. That was just, that was inspirational. That's why we woke up every day. That's why we went back to the hospital every single day. That's why we risked our lives to make this film is we felt just deeply moved. I hope that people, when they, if they do, and when they do, hopefully engage with the film, they feel that love and they feel that empathy and that humanity. Again, to distill the film into one thing, it's about how human beings come together in the face of crisis. And that was, while difficult, a really beautiful thing to witness. Yeah, the film is, it is inspirational. It goes through some just incredible highs and lows. You are on a, a real emotional roller coaster watching this film, and I'm sure making it was no different. But you don't shy away from shooting the, in the dark spaces. There's a scene, for instance, where Dr. Duget is on the phone with the family of a patient who has just died. It's just a wrenching moment. Can you take us inside the mindset of a cinema verite filmmaker for a moment to be able and willing to just say, I'm going to keep the camera rolling here in what is perhaps the deepest, most personal moment that human beings can have when they find out a loved one has just died? It's hard to describe. I don't even know if there's a word that sort of describes the complexity of emotions that are running through your head at the time. On one hand, you feel 
the journalistic importance of capturing these moments, of these emotional truths, of what people are going through. On the other hand, you don't want it to feel exploitative. All of these thoughts are running through your head while you're filming. They can coexist. They're allowed to coexist. And they do coexist. There's multiple sides of making a documentary, right? There's shooting, and then there's editing, and then there's everything in between. And so I think it's really in the edit room where you spend that rigor and that time analyzing these moments and, and how to contextualize them and how to make sure that both the participants who we filmed are okay with it, obviously, first and foremost, but that it feels right, that it doesn't feel like we're just doing it for shock and awe. And I think that meter, that sort of pedal, if you will, between the intensity of what we saw, because the film could have been 10 times more intense than what you saw. What we witnessed every single day could have been far more intense than what you saw. And it could have been less intense. I think we tried to find that balance in the edit room between the realities of what we saw and the knowledge that we obviously wanted people to continue to watch the film and engage with the film. That tightrope was something that we were walking at every step along the way. And it is an emotional roller coaster, and there are highs and lows. And we're extraordinarily conscientious of that, of that at every step along the way. It's interesting you use the word balance, because that is something I look for in a documentary. And I don't mean balance in the traditional sense of like balanced perspectives. I mean, balance in, a, in an emotional sense and narratively. And I think the film is incredibly balanced. And that's just a testament to, to all of you who made this film. There are other inspirational people in the film. There are patients. There's the remarkable Ahmed Ellis, who becomes one of the two main patient characters in the movie. When we first meet Ahmed, he's in bed. He's not in very good shape. He seems barely conscious. Take us to those moments when you first started filming with Ahmed and how he became one of the main characters in the movie. One of the, one of the difficult things about walking around in ICU, especially in COVID, Almost everyone's on a ventilator. It, it feels like a living morgue. It's really scary and dehumanizing. And there's just something about Ahmed's eyes that were inviting. There's a fight to them. It, it, it just, everyone talked about it. it. It wasn't some sort of like cinematic device that we, when we use those macro shots of his eyes, you know, opening and closing. And it wasn't something like imprinted in the filmmaking process. Like, People talked about it. There's something about his eyes that was really special. And I think that's what drew us to him. And the fact that he was so young, he's 35 years old. He's a New York City cop. But given the fact that he was intubated and, and that he was unconscious, we obviously had to gain the trust of his family and, and the consent of his family. So we reached out through the hospital to his wife, Alexis. They have two young kids. And we needed to gain her trust. And, and everybody felt, again, this openness, this willingness to, to show what it was like at that time. And Again, we owe so much to her for, for allowing us to film both her family and her in, in these really isolating and difficult times, but also obviously Ahmed in the hospital at that time as well. I wanted to ask you about shooting with the families. It's a big part of the film. Did it require you to change your mindset as a team when you were going from the ICU to filming with the families? I don't know if it changed our mindset. When you first gain access to film with families, which originally wasn't part of the deal, we, the part of the deal was focusing on healthcare workers. And then after gaining the trust of the hospital, they started to allow us to talk to patients. It just opened up a whole set of storytelling opportunities 
to, to really understand this pandemic and to see, again, how isolating this was and how separated everyone was. Cinematically, yeah, we had to change our mindset that and, and shoot it differently and, and make it feel different. And, and those were all conscious things that we were, that we were thinking about. Absolutely. Another major patient character in the film is Brussels Gabon. She's a nurse. She has COVID. Her husband also has COVID. In fact, basically her entire family has COVID. She's just given birth to a baby that she's separated from because she has COVID. What did you learn from spending time with the Gabon family? It's an extraordinary family. Yeah, their family is amazing. The fact that they were all nurses and that they all had COVID. Similar to Ahmed, there's certain patients that healthcare workers in the hospital talked about a lot and, and I think invested a lot in. And, and she and he were certainly two of them among many others. I mean, they invested in everybody. But the fact that I think in Ahmed's case, many people could relate, especially Kelly, when one of the nurses that we followed, relate to the fact that she also had, had two young kids similar to Ahmed. And, and I think the fact that Brussels was a nurse and the fact that at every minute of every single day, obviously top of mind for everyone in the hospital was, when am I going to get this? Am I going to spread this to my family? And so there's this enormous collective feeling like we can't let her go. Her family was incredible. They were a rock through this whole process. And the fact that she had just given birth and she couldn't see her baby Leon. Her story especially defined that isolation. They're isolated from the baby. They're isolated from each other. Even their other daughter, Andy, when they went to go play with her, they'd have to put on full PPE to go even just like hold her because they didn't want her to get it. I'm just also just deeply grateful to them for opening up their home to us. Dr. Duget makes the point that the majority of her patients are Black, Hispanic, or immigrant. She herself is from the Bronx, born to Haitian parents. And she says, it's tough to see your people constantly have to suffer. How did you, as a film team, do justice to the fact that people of color were being disproportionately impacted by COVID? You didn't have to be a, yeah, a scientist or an epidemiologist or a researcher to see. You just needed to walk around the ICU and, and see that this disease was disproportionately impacting people of color. It was vivid. It was clear. It was never a question amongst our team of, especially after the first couple of weeks in which this really became clear, it was never a question of if we were going to include that aspect of the story. It was how, and it was through Dr. Duget that all of this was elucidated just naturally. And it was just following her over the course of these three or four months that all of this was verbalized and we came to understand it. And obviously with the killing of George Floyd in May and these empty streets surrounding me suddenly being filled with energy, with protesters, with anger about systemic racism in our country, which obviously is intricately tied to this disproportionate impact, which again, Dr. Duget, just following her, brought us out into the streets, into the protests. And so it all just came out naturally in following her over the course of these four months. The film is broken into four months. June's the last. In May 2020, we do have the murder of George Floyd and the protests that erupted throughout the world, but as depicted here in this film throughout New York City. We see Dr. Duget at one point leave her apartment in scrubs wearing a sign around her neck. Racism is a public health issue. We go with her to a BLM protest. She has I can't breathe written on her mask. 
there's no voiceover or dialogue here. It's just some chanting, a moment of silence. I felt like you were letting the film itself take a moment to breathe here. Is this something where you just figured out the rhythm of this in the edit? Finding that balance and how to interweave, that's something that we deliberated on and, and again, contemplated for weeks or months in the edit room. And yeah, of course, it was purposeful to sort of let the moment sit, to let us reflect on this, on, on what's written on our mask, on I Can't Breathe. Those words were echoed through the streets of cities all across America, all across the world, in process of systemic racism. Those words were echoed in ICUs and ERs, in hospitals all across cities in America and all across the world. We absolutely wanted that moment to just be a moment where we could feel, where we could sit in that moment, reflect on that moment. And then obviously, when you see the film, there's a very, very, very powerful interaction between her and a young man at the end of this protest. After that incredibly intense moment, we see her back alone at home. She's tired, she's upset. She's also pretty vulnerable, I would say, at that moment. Can you tell us how you came to trust each other, to build trust during these very personal moments, which I think really have gone far beyond what I'm sure she originally signed up for at the beginning of this filmmaking process. That contract between a filmmaker and a participant or subject, that trust, again, is earned, not given. You constantly have to check in with each other. You constantly have to be transparent with intentions, especially in the case of this, of overburdening somebody who is extremely overburdened and then doubly so after the killing of George Floyd and then the impact that that had on her as a Black woman, as a Black physician, and just as a human being, given all that she'd been going through as a doctor. We absolutely had a lot of conversations about how much she was willing to let us in and not let us in for. We spoke a lot about what she was comfortable with and what she was not comfortable with. And I, I can't stop saying this enough, how much I respect and admire her for allowing us to film her at such vulnerable times. It's been really nice since the film's finished. I really do consider her a friend and we've become quite close. It's been an interesting experience traveling with the film in the past couple of months. I feel quite close to everyone in the film. And I think we've all gotten to know each other quite well. And they've gotten to know each other, even though they didn't know each other during the filmmaking process. It's been a really special energy in the room at every screening to have them there with us, supporting the film and, and talking about the film and talking about what they've been through. So there are some lighter moments and some moments of joy. There's a change of tone when we first encounter Carl Arabian, who's the physical therapist who arrives to work with Ahmed. They have such a warm, jovial dynamic. When did you meet Carl? Was he just sent down from documentary filmmaker heaven to, uh, to grace your movie or what? He was definitely sent down from the comedy gods of documentary heaven, which I believe is a separate part of documentary heaven, because most documentaries don't have a lot of laughs. And this film certainly doesn't have a lot of laughs, but he definitely does provide comedic relief and a whole lot of love. I love that relationship in this movie Two unlikely friends who bonded. And I think that's one of the incredible things about witnessing the art of medicine over many months is that it's as much about medicine and the giving of medicine as it is about human connection. And a huge part of that relationship was Carl coming in as a physical therapist and instantly creating a bond 
with Ahmed and inspiring him to do better, to be better, to get healthy and to get the hell out of there as fast as he could. And that's what he did. That bond was undeniable. They're still friends to this day without giving away the end of the movie. But there's a joke when he's leaving the hospital from one of his family members, like, Carl, you're invited to all the barbecues. He does go over and have barbecues with his family. And it was a beautiful thing to witness. That's lovely to hear. There are two extraordinary homecomings in the film. These are the highs that we alluded to, just amazing sequences. And they're also incredibly well shot. Can you talk to us a bit about how you shot those sequences or put them together? There's moments in the documentary that you know are going to be in the movie. And there's moments where you're fishing or you're swimming. Those moments were obviously, we'd been filming for months. We knew that these moments would be in the film. They were victories, not just for the individuals that we filmed with, they're victories for their families. As importantly, they're victories for all the healthcare workers that invested so much. Imagine basically having defeats almost every single day. And so they needed those victories, which didn't come that often, to keep fighting, to keep going in every day, to keep inspiring them, despite the lack of tools that they had to help people. They were really, really poignant. And to see a lobby filled with people on both sides clapping as they're leaving. I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. As a New Yorker yourself, you've documented four terrible, unprecedented months in the history of this city and of this country and of the entire world. But is there anything that you want to add or leave our audience with about the four months that you documented here in the film? I hope that a hundred different people who see this film take away a hundred different things from the film. I think it's about every aspect of the human condition. Obviously it's about COVID, but I, I hope it's about much more than that. And I think there's no question that every single one of us has changed. You've changed. I've changed. Our families have changed. The way we communicate has changed. The fabric of society has changed. And I hope that the film at the very least provides a vehicle for us to reflect on what we've all been through and take stock of what we've been through, take stock of what we learned. And as we start to move on from this, what have we learned? What can we apply from what we all just went through to make us better as individuals, to make our society better? And I think there's a lot to chew on there. And so I hope among many other things that, that this film provides a vehicle for us to reflect on all that. It certainly does, Matthew, and, and it does so much more. Is there anyone who contributed to the film that you want to thank? Every film is a team effort, but this film was just a massive undertaking. A lot of people risked their lives to make it. I, I could list names for the next three minutes. First and foremost, I want to thank my producing partners, Jenna Millman and Leslie Norville, who helped the ship move in during what was an incredibly strenuous and stressful time. What's up next for you? I've been making a film in Afghanistan about the end of the war there. Can't say much more about it than that. I would just urge everybody out there to see this film with other people. See it in theaters. It's opening this weekend in various cities. It'll be shown in other cities. After this week, it's going to be streaming later in the year. Matthew, congratulations to you and your entire team. It's an extraordinary film. It's one that I'm certainly never going to forget. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Do you have a hidden gem, a film you've seen in the past or even something more recently 
that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? I don't know why this is popping to mind, but I'll just say it. Uh, Sherman's March, I, I didn't study film. I didn't have any clue I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. And there's a few documentaries that I saw as I started to dip my toes into this. And Sherman's March was one of them. It's obviously the opposite of how I make films. I'm not in my films. Hopefully you don't really feel my presence. And that was an unbelievably personal first person film. But it was such a beautiful time capsule of that period of time about a person going through sort of a life-changing event. I knew so little of that film at that point. Not that I know anything now. But it was fun, it was funny, it felt like a narrative film. It just had a lot of elements that just felt different from the films that I watched in history class in high school. Murder Ball was another film I watched around that time. But those were films that early on had, had a pretty profound impact on me, showing that documentaries could feel like narrative films. It could have really strong characters and moments and scenes.